Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock Podcast. I'm joined as usual by Peter, my co-host. Hello, Peter. Hi, Ross. Still still in sunny Wales, are you? I am, yes. Although not so sunny. <laughs> Didn't think it would be. Um, but down in sunny Sussex, we're joined by a special guest who's with us today, um, well, there's a long list of people that have come from his neck of the woods, um, some of them more famous than others. You've got the Glenister boys from acting. You've got Vinnie Jones, the footballer. You've got um, Tim Lovejoy, the football man. You've got Jerry Halliwell. You've got Craig McHale Smith from Albion fame. Just down the road, you've got Reg Dwight, whoever he is. You've even got university <laughs> challenge announcer Roger Tilling. But none of them are as famous or as pleasurable to speak to, I'm sure, as the man we've got with us today is Mr. Bob Booker. Hello, Bob. How are you doing? Yeah. Good evening, guys. Yeah. Sort of strange mixture of company I'm in with there, aren't I? Uh, yeah, I'm, I know. I, know. I, knew a, I knew the few of the names that you mentioned. Obviously, Vinny and Craig and uh, Jerry, Jerry Hallowell. I think she was from the, was it the Spice Girls. My, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this there's quite a few football-related people. I'm just going down the list. Carries on. You've got Luther Blissett, obviously, famously with Watford FC. Tom yeah, Carroll, the Swansea. Luther. Oh, you know, you know him, yeah? Luther. Yeah, good friends with Luther. Yeah. Well, my Excellent. my brother, my brother-in-law was uh, one of his teammates, Ian Bolton. So uh, he's my brother-in-law. He used to play for Watford in the Graham Taylor days. Yeah. And he yeah. actually marked me on my debut for Brentford against Watford at Vicarage Road. Uh, I didn't know him then, and he kicked, he kicked the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> so I was a year old, starting my career, and he, he he kicked me all over the park. And Luther Blissett played in that game, and Rush Jenkins, I think they both scored. And it was my first ever league game, and uh, we lost two 0 And there was, I think, there was nearly twenty thousand people there, and I played, who became my brother-in-law. You know, further down the line, right. he come come to Brentford, and we we travelled in together, and then I introduced him to my sister, which was, he said, was the worst thing he ever could done. <laughs> and maybe that get married. So yeah, the person that marked me my debut ended up becoming my brother-in-law. Wonderful, I love it. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's quite a few. Uh, there's yeah, Tom there's Carroll. 
made football so so great, doesn't it? Like random stories about yeah your first game and how yeah that the guy ends up ends up like that. It's like amazing, really. Yeah, yeah it, it was a, it was a strange one, really. You know, because Watford were flying at that time, and I I didn't even know I was going to play on that day. To be fair, I thought I was just meeting the squad as I'd only been at the club about a month, and then uh, I was told to meet at Watford Football Ground and. Uh, yeah, I, I end up starting the game. So all my my friends and family were standing behind a goal. I used to, used to stand as a kid because I'm a Watford boy. So I used to watch the Hornets from the Vicarage Road end with all the fans. Uh, you know, and you know, 18 years old, just or just turned 18, I was I was out on the hallow turf. You know, plying my trade against against Watford. So yeah, it was quite a, quite a uh, yeah, not an easy start, but a strange one. You know, different story, different story. Yeah. That's, that's well, we might be... interesting as well, that your first game was at the, the ground you grew up watching football at as well. That's pretty cool. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I got released I got released as a youngster. Uh, I used to train down at Watford very early on. I think I was about 12 or 13, and it was the, it was the time of the power cuts. Uh, and obviously, oh, yeah. we couldn't go down there in the evening and train. And uh, the great Tom Wally, who was a good Watford, Watford stalwart coach, he got me down there, and I was training with him, and... Uh, they said that they would get in contact with me when the power came back on the lights come, but I never heard from anybody again. So that, that was the end of my Watford career. Again. Yeah, I was going to say, did the power come back on ever? I mean, maybe that's what the problem was. I don't know. I'm still waiting for that phone call. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've we mentioned yourself. We've mentioned um, Blues and Blissett, um, Craig McHale-Smith. And um, Vinnie Jones. There's also Tom Carroll, who plays for Swansea. There's Jack Collinson. I assumed he was um, a local boy down in West Ham, but he's actually from Watford. Um, Kenny Jackett, obviously, played for Watford, I think, as well as uh, um, managing several places. Um, and there's also Kelly Smith, the uh, famous women's player. Um, it says here Gareth Southgate. We always thought he was a Crawley boy. I don't know if he was born mm. and initially brought up in Watford before moving down to Crawley. I don't know. I know him as a guy from Crawley, mm. but... Uh, um, or, and a guy who doesn't pick Brighton players for the England team. But anyway, um, <laughs> and um, also there's Paul Robinson, which I'm assuming is the one who, because he played for Watford. I'm assuming that's yeah. the guy that played for the Albion as well. That's that was he was the he was a tough little left back. Paul Robinson is the one you were thinking of. He was the the left back, um, little, little tiny lad. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. But it was, yeah. yeah, it was yeah. He was he went to Birmingham. He was quite. A, he was, a, he was a nasty player, not in the wrong way, but he was, you know, he was strong, little, you know, ferocious left back. So that's the Paul Robinson from the Watford from the Watford team, yeah. Yeah. Good lad. Well, well, that's enough. I, I can now close that Wikipedia window I had open <laughs> and um, get, get on to asking you about your early days. I want I want to get um, to the to the bottom of what little Bob Booker and his school shorts, age whatever, you know, in the very early sixties, uh, growing up. How was life for you growing up, and, and how did you get into football in particular? How did I get into? I probably got into football because of my dad. My dad ran a, a, a local Sunday team called Evergreen, uh, and it was just up the road from us. You know, he, he sort of run uh, quite a young team through that. You know, so that was my first introduction. I mean, I wasn't. I always loved all different sports. It wasn't particularly football. I, I just loved being outside and playing different sports, like whether it was running. Or football. I mean, football predominantly, but uh, yeah. So my early days, my my dad sort of got into to youth football, and I stayed at that Evergreen Club for quite a few years, right through really until I I left school and then went to work in the furniture factory at fifteen, sixteen. I, you know, I wanted to leave school and earn some money, 
So I went into a furniture factory and was learning my trade as an upholsterer right. on, the shop floor, on the shop floor, looking after about 10 upholsterers, you know, and I was the only apprentice. So that was a what I call a good grounding for me in what I call a real world, you know, looking after them and making sure the tea was warm and go on their errands for lunchtime and make sure I learned my trade as I was going along, keep the shop floor clean and a lot of discipline, which I think stood me in good stead for when I became a youth team manager with the youngsters I had below me. You know, I sort of remembered how I was treated by them and how I'd want to be respected and, you know, sort of to be firm but fair. So, yeah, I, and up until the furniture factory was really, then I just sort of started playing local Saturday football for a team called Bedman Social, where hmm. Vinny was in, Vinny was there as well. We all came from the same sort of area, really. Myself, Vinny Jones, Derek French, who was my physio at Sheffield United, and Dave Bassett, who obviously went to Wimbledon. We all sort of knew each other. Uh, and me and Vinny were at a team called Bedman. And it was it was like being in the right time at the right place. I was playing for Bedman and I was scoring a lot of goals and there wasn't a lot to celebrate. There's probably two men and a dog watching around the rope running outside the pitch. Uh, it's just part football, really. And my manager at the time, Dave Bromley, God bless him, who we've lost now, he, he lucky enough for me, he was the groundsman for one of the directors at Brentford. He used to do his landscape gardening. And he just, uh, one day, he just said, you know, I've got this lad that scored a lot of goals for me up front. Would you be able to get him a trial? And it was as simple as that, really. And uh, Willis Hall, which is his name, Willis Hall was the man that wrote Wurzel Gummidge. You might remember that programme. Well, yeah, uh, I do indeed, yeah. He had, he had a word with the great Bill Dodgin, who was my first manager at Brentford. And I got invited up to play in, in a two o'clock midweek. It was called the Midweek League then. And it was funny enough, it was against Brighton. Uh, so I, I had the predicament because I was just about finishing my apprenticeship after four years stint in the in the in the factory, and I had to go and see my foreman. I was I was particularly scared of at the time because he was a bit of a ruthless man, and I asked him for this afternoon off to go and play this trial, and he, he was he was right behind me. He said, "Yeah, that's an opportunity you can't really pass down, really." So I turned up at Brentford Football Club with with uh, Dave Bromley. And that was a quite a daunting experience coming into a league football ground after just playing on a local park, uh, going down to the dressing rooms with my with my kit bag and my boots, and walking into the dressing room full of uh, professional footballers. And it was quite daunting, uh, to say the least. But I, I I went out there and just sort of did my did my bit. Uh, Peter Ward actually played in that game. I've, hmm. I've still I've still got a program for it. And Peter Ward played in that game, and uh, I managed to score two goals. We lost 3-2, but I, I scored the two goals. So I came off there particularly happy, thinking, oh, I've done not bad there. Like my first, you know, afternoon in a, in a football league stadium and I've scored two goals. So that was it, really. And then after that, I got called up to Bill Dodgers' office with, with my manager. And he just sort of sat me down and said, look, we really like what we saw. You're very raw. You're young. You know, you're aggressive. You're tall. Uh, we feel there's a little bit there. We, how would you feel about coming up and doing a bit of training with us so we could have a longer look at you? So I was a bit in shock, to be fair. I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I thought I was just going to have a 90-minute game and go home again. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I went back again. On the, I went back on the Wednesday morning and saw my foreman. <laughs> uh, chipped myself again, got to speak to him uh, and ask him for, I think it was, you know, could I have a couple of weeks off to go and do a bit of training full-time? So that's what he did. So, you know, my apprenticeship had just finished. So, I, you know, I, I, I'd learnt my trade, but he said, no, that's something you can't, you can't turn away. You've got to go and have a go. So uh, 
I got picked up from one of the local players that played for Brentford called Pat Cruz. He came from Stevenage, so he picked me up on the way through at Watford. And I went up to Brentford for about 10 days training. And literally after that 10 days training, again, the manager called me in and said, we would like to offer you a full-time professional contract. And I, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, really. So, and at that time, in 1979, I was on fairly good money at the factory. I was probably, I just finished my apprenticeship. So I was on, I was on about 200, 250 pound a week on piecework. Mm. So Bill Dodgin put the, put the contract in front of me and I, I looked at it briefly. Uh, I was always going to sign it. I didn't know what it said. I just looked down. I thought, where's the pen? Uh, and it was for 60 pound a week. Well, I used to have to give my mum 20 for my housekeeping. And I didn't have a car and I didn't have a bike to travel anywhere. So 60 quid was a bit of a drop, but I didn't even think about the figure. I just I just signed the contract and went home and told my parents that I've signed professional forms. And they was really pleased, thinking I was probably going to be on more money than what I was at the factory. And I told them I was going to earn 60 pound a week. Yeah. So, I was just going to ask, actually, about, um, you know, there, there was no real difference in wages, was there, between ordinary jobs and football jobs? And um, you've, you've already highlighted the subject. I think there's two things for me from that era, which one is that and the other one is in terms of you've alluded to it by saying you're in fear of your uh, foreman there. And also in terms of being a footballer, you are very much, uh, again, in the dressing room environment. There's a lot more of a, a deference sort of thing, isn't there? I think back in that time, which maybe the lads are nowadays less less daunted by. Do well, they don't, a, yeah, they don't yeah. need different days you know, with the facilities they've got. You know, you know, a player coming down to, to Brighton now and coming to the training ground or coming to the to the annex, it's a no brainer. But yeah. uh, in you know, in, in that era that, that I grew up in, you know, players weren't on big money. You know, it was it was just average wages, and you know, yes, you had the kudos of being a footballer, but it didn't come with the trimmings like it does today. Yeah, so there is a bit of a leap of faith then. You have to believe in yourself, don't you, back then? Now you can you can be on good money and it might not work out and you've, you've cashed in for a couple of years in the meantime, but back then, yeah. well, if you've got a good job, only, you can... Only, well, yeah, well, that's what my dad said to me, always learn a trade, but I'd finished my apprenticeship, so I had the trade to go back on and I, you know, I only had a year contract and then there was no guarantee that I was going to get even get in the team, hmm. which I didn't at first. Uh, so it, it was a bit of a gamble, but I think it was one that you have, you have to take otherwise you'd be turning around and saying oh I wish I'd have done that I wish I'd have signed pro and you know and and if it didn't happen after a year or whatever and I, I didn't get off for another contract then and so be it it's meant to be but uh you know, for, for my sake you know I went on and stayed in the game until till the present time really hmm. and you're described as a midfielder online I've been reading up um would that would that be pretty much how you describe yourself or did you move around it, it does well, say I, you filled other roles a lot as well. Yeah, I, I started predominantly at the, at the park football. I was predominantly a centre forward, one hmm. because of my height. I was I was quite you know fairly aggressive and I I could score goals. But as at Brentford, I, I I got known as a utility player really because if someone got injured, whether it be a right back or left back or centre half, I went in and took their place and and sort of learnt that trade as I was doing it. So that hmm. stood me in good stead for my coaching days because I played in, I mean, one year when I got player of the year at Brentford, I played in every position except goalkeeper. Yeah. So to play in all them positions and then take that into your coaching career, you know, you know, what it, you know what's needed when the right back gets it. Can he play it to the right winger? Can he play it to midfield? Can he knock it long to the centre forward? Can he go across the back at midfield? Have I looked over my shoulder before I'm going to do my next pass? 
If I'm a centre forward, am I coming short? Or am I going long? So, yeah. you know, playing in the positions really, really did help me when I when I got into coaching. So uh, I was I was classed as a utility player when I went to Sheffield United. I was predominantly a centre midfield player because that's the way Dave Bassett liked to play me because he liked us winning knockdowns and getting up and down the pitch, and I had the engine to do that. It wasn't, you know, it was a long ball game, so I wasn't going short like I was at Brentford and getting off the centre halves. I was going long and getting the knockdowns off centre forward. So, uh, but I did play quite a bit at, at centre half at Sheffield United, but mate, at Brentford, predominantly all over the place. Yeah, and um, I was reading quite a bit up on. There was an article in the um, online Football Pink which was an interesting article talking about your career as well, um, and I think it touches on those early days where you, you had the time at Brentford, obviously the things you've mentioned already. And as I understand it, you were going to uh, change due to, I think it was due to some niggling injuries with knees, wasn't it? You were actually thinking of, um, was that the time when you were thinking of giving up and you were looking at getting into a different business away from the game? Uh, I had a really bad injury in 1986. I snapped my cruciate ligament, yeah. which in them days worse than a broken leg, really. Yeah. Uh, so I, I had big surgery on that. And I was I was out of action for about 18, 22 months, something like that. And that was that was hard to come back from. Uh, you know, I was in a full cast. Once they took the cast off, my leg was just like as thin as my arm. It, it was just horrendous time, really. Mm. Uh, and there was no guarantees that I was going to be able to come back and play professional football. Uh, I, I was still under contract, and Brentford stuck with me, and uh, and. While, I, while that contract was running out and they gave me another contract while I was still injured to see if I could get fit. Uh, and I did, I did get back to back, I did get back to playing, but it was a long, it was a long time. And then as, as the months went on and my knee was deteriorating, that's when I was looking mm. at the end of my contract to probably get out of the game and I was going to buy into a small cleaning business, but uh, that didn't quite happen and I went to Sheffield United. <laughs> not, not a bad fullback, is it? <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not a bad full, Yeah, again, didn't see that one coming, but... Uh, yeah. Especially at being being thirty one with a dodgy knee and going up to uh, going up to play at, at the Blades, it was uh, another big step up, like. But yeah, just the way things happen for you, being in the right time at the right place. And you must have been especially glad that you did because it was a successful time, wasn't it? From one reading, you've uh, under Dave Bassett, wasn't it, as a manager back then, legendary manager of his time, and um, I think you you signed up pretty quick and you did pretty well. There's like a double promotion, wasn't there? Yeah, it was back to back promotions. Hmm. Uh, it, it was a t- it, it was very tough going up there because I wasn't really fit and I was worried about my knee and and you know Dave Bassett insisted that you know we'll we'll get you we'll get you sorted you know we'll we'll manage you and things like that. So, yeah. but I, I hadn't played a lot of I hadn't played much football at all at Brentford in the latter the latter months before I went to Sheffield United. So I was well out of sorts and I had a, I struggled at first at, at Sheffield United yeah. to to get up with the pace of the game, especially the way that, yeah. that the Harry was playing. But uh, yeah, it was a bit whirlwind. It was a bit of a whirlwind, really. Uh, and you're in your early thirties at this point, weren't you? I think is that yeah, right? Yeah, just thirty-one. Yeah. So and maybe uh, partly for that reason, given the captaincy too. Well, I was given the captaincy a few times. I was lucky enough to be given the skippership when we went up into the Promised Land, which was the old First Division away at Leicester. Yeah. Uh, original centre half Paul Stancliffe was injured, and and Dave Bassett made me captain that day, and I was very proud. To walk down that tunnel with that with that team of thugs behind me, knowing what we was going in. If we won this game, if we beat Leicester, we was going to be in the promised land. Uh, and to get there at 32, 33 is where I always wanted to get, uh, albeit for you know a short time towards the end of the career. So, it was yeah, it was it was a lot of success. I had a 
a great infinity with the fans up there. I mean, the fan base was like, you know, 20 to 30,000. It's, it's incredible, really. Hmm. Uh, and they really, they really took to me. They didn't at first, but they did. I think they realised I was just a working class lad. You know, yes, I'd already played sort of over 300 games for Brentford and they probably thought, who the hell's Bob Booker? But by the end of my couple of years there, you know, I'm lucky enough that I've, I've got a, a box named after me and, you know, I'm classed as a sort of a folk, you know, a bit of a hero up there, you know, which is quite bizarre, really. And that's where the chant, who are Bob Booker, come from. <laughs> and it, it, it is mind blowing. You, you go up there and I, I do sort of perhaps after dinner speeches and signing sessions still, or I go up there for a match. And I have young kids coming up to sign, you know, to ask my autograph, you know, the 15 or 16. I say, you weren't even born when I was up here. And they say, no, but my dad told me all about you. And he sung his song and he showed me the DVDs. So it's a continuation of people asking for your autograph that had never, ever seen you play. So I was very, I was very grateful for the way the fans took to me. And it, it's great when I go up there and even sort of 30 years on. It's a nice feeling to get recognised like that. And I just, just know that I sort of gave my all for that football club, uh, as I did in all my career, really. But I think, you know, the fans really appreciated it up there and what I, what I try to do for the football club. Oh, brilliant. That's good to hear. I mean, it sounds quite similar to a little bit of the Gary Hart sort of thing there, really. Having a good, catchy yeah. song and being a cult hero in a certain era. Um, yeah, there's a lot of similarities, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, what a great servant Gary Hart was. I mean, I was lucky enough to, to work with him and coach him. And, uh, you know, he come from non-league at Stansted and probably the best 10 grand, whatever it was that Brighton ever spent, apart from Bobby Zamora. You know, someone like him is, is priceless. You know, he played different positions you know, done over 10 years, you're not going to get the modern day footballer to sort of get to do that these days. You know, they're all kissing the badges and they've been there, they're lasting about five minutes. So, you know, they're few and far between them sort of, them, them players that are going to come through the ranks now, someone like Gary Hart. Hmm. And in the um, article I was reading, it, uh, you're quoted as saying, you knew what you got with Dave, meaning Dave Bassett. Um, he could absolutely slaughter you in the dressing room, but you would still run through brick walls for him. And his man management skills were brilliant. So do you think that that's a dying breed, that kind of a manager that motivates you in that sort of way? It, it sounds um, quite Mickey Adams-ish, actually, as well. Yeah. I mean, it, you took the words right out of my mouth, Russ. It, it, does, it did remind me of, of, uh, of Mickey Adams, you know, whether it's ruled by fear, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, he was like a mentor to me. You know, he, he, took, he took a chance on me at 31 when I, when I was, my knees were knackered and, you know, he took a chance on me and he believed in me and he, he kept playing me when, when I was having a tough time. And he, he looked after me like a father, really. And I would have run through a brick wall for him. And, uh, you know, his man management was absolutely brilliant. You know, like I say, you knew if you was having a bad game or you wasn't doing it, then you got, you got told or you was reminded of it very, very quickly. But uh, I, remember, I remember one story just on his man management skills and in, in, in the heat of the moment. We were going for promotion and we, we lost one nil at home. And I hadn't been home for about six weeks because I, I, I lived in digs up there. And uh, I'd asked him on the Friday if I could go home after the game to see my family. And he said, yeah, no problem, Bob. Well, in the heat of the moment after the game, he absolutely slaughtered us because we got beat one nil at home in front of 25,000 and the, the, the punters weren't very happy. Uh, and he said, you didn't work hard enough in the, in the second half, so you're going to come in tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, eight o'clock, and you're going to run around the pitch for 45 minutes because you didn't run today for the fans. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I've got to make a phone call now. I'm not, I'm not going to be coming home. I'm training in the morning. So I went off into the shower. And in that moment, 
he would remember that I'd been to see him on Friday about going home to see my family because I hadn't been home for six weeks. And he just tapped me on the shoulder and said, Bob, get, get yourself off back home tonight. Go and see your family. I'll see you Monday. And I said, no, Harry, if the lads are going to be running, I don't think that looks right if I go off home and they're running and I'm not, I'm not running as well. But I appreciate what you what you just said. But in the heat of the moment, he remembered that conversation yeah. with me. And then sort of yeah. things stick with me. And that, that you know, that, that spoke volumes of what type of man he is. You know, you knew he, a bit like Chrissy Wilder, really, Mickey Adams. You know they're the gaffer, but you can mm. also have a relationship with them. You know, there's football and there's social side and there's the football side. When it's work, it's business. And when it's social, it's social. And I don't think not many managers have got that in the, in the modern day. They're all detached from the players so much now. You know, they've got coaches to do this. They've got scientists to do that. They've got, you know, statisticians to tell the players this. They've got doctors and analyze. And the manager probably doesn't have as much to do with them as, as someone like Dave, Dave did and Mickey Adams. So very similar managers. Yeah. One final thing on the playing days. Um, just with Sheffield United, you, you were um, lucky to be at the forefront of times when football was invented in 1992, weren't you? Because Sheffield United getting promoted in that for, to get into that inaugural season. Um, mm. Again, reading up on that, you were bottom of the table at Christmas and went on a, yeah. a long winning run to get promoted to get into that inaugural Premier League season. That's, that's well, an amazing up. achievement. It was to stay up, actually. We, we got there the, the year before and then oh, the right. first, yeah. year, first year in the Premiership in the uh, old First Division, we was we hadn't won a game up to Christmas. Oh, right, we I misread that. Then. We went on an unbelievable run about 13 games and it went down to, uh, again, went down to a game at QPR uh, and I was lucky enough to score the winning goal that kept us in the First Division. So again, mm. that goes down in, in history with a lot of the Blades fans, the goal that kept us up, like, you know, so uh, you know, that was a nice memory. I, I remember scoring at the, uh, it was the scoreboard end and looking up, I've seen it on YouTube a few times and looking up after I scored the goal, my dad and my friends and my best mates were looking over the scoreboard below. And it was just a sea of yellow shirts with your weight, with your weight shirt for, for Sheffield United. So yeah, QPR and Leicester probably the highlights of my, my footballing days, uh, to remember really at Sheffield mm. United. Uh, yeah. You just had a brief spell back at Brentford, didn't you? And then, and then wrapped it up from there. Is that right? Well, that was a difficult one because I, I didn't see, again, I didn't see that one coming. It always ran, it's me around the corner. I was, you know, we was in the first. We got into the first division, uh, and I played sort of a bit part. I've been subbed quite a bit, and Harry said to me, "You know, I'm not going to put you under pressure. You, we've given you another year's contract." And so I was sort of playing a little bit, and you know, I was 33 by now, so I wasn't, you know, I was on the back end of it. And then he come, he come in on, he come in one Saturday morning and told me that Brentford had come back in for me. And I, oh, I said, well, I was, I was a bit surprised at that. And I said, well, I've got another year in my contract. Uh, Harry he said, yeah, he said, but they're offering you another two on top of that. And he said, I think you'd be silly not to take it at your age now. You know, they're going to offer you, they're going to give you the same wages you're on at Sheffield United. They're going to give you a sign on fee. You're going to be back home. We're probably not going to be able to give you another year as much as we'd love to. You know, you're on the back end of 33 now and what with your knee and everything. So that was a difficult one because I didn't really want to leave Sheffield United, but he, he, he sort of, again, my mentor, he told me it was the best thing to do. My, my, Mm. My heart was saying stay, but my head was saying I had, I had to go back to Brentford, which was very difficult because we were due to play Sheffield Wednesday that day at Bramall Lane. Mm. Uh, once he, once he, yeah, once he decided that I, I wasn't going to play and he was going to send me back down to London, he, he decided that I was going to go out on the, on the pitch and say cheerio to the fans. 
which I thought was a strange one because <laughs> who normally does that? You know, oh, you're leaving. Who's gonna who's gonna clap someone that's leaving? But I, I went out there and I was in tears and I just got a standing ovation from from three sides of the ground. That's uh, brilliant. Mm. Yeah, that will live with me forever. And uh, I I was quite amazed because you know it happens so quick, but to get that sort of uh, adulation when someone's leaving a football club after two and a half three years was was a little bit you know it was a bit uh, a bit over overawed by the whole situation really and I, I did I shed I shed many a tear that day I have to say yeah one one final thing actually just and um, more on the subject of your former clubs um, Brentford I've got to ask you a couple of things about that obviously they've just moved grounds hardly anyone's seen the new ground yet because of uh, the COVID situation. Um, mm. But it's a classic old ground, Griffin Park. Now, Peter, I'm assuming you've been down there, haven't you? And, uh, and is, is that one of your favourites from the past? First of all, just to ask you that, Peter. Yeah, although slightly impacted by the, the couple of 4-0 defeats we had there at one point. That was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I strategically managed to avoid those somehow. I, I couldn't make either of those games. So, so it's still one a happy of, one hunting of those, ground for One me. of those, Peter. No, I was, was caretaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I was okay. we, fun evenings. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the later results weren't great there for us as Albion fans, but we had some cracking days. I was there for the game where Gary Nelson scored the cracker in the uh, the league match when we, um, I think it was the league game, um, when we won 2-1. Amazing goal. And I think we got a one all that season as well. Um some good games, good atmosphere as well. It's a, it's a good club, yeah. Brentford. I do love the point, you know, on every every corner at each of the pubs yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, how did you find it as a player? Was that was that an interest? I mean, compared with other grounds, was that something quite unique? Because it feels very tight in there, doesn't it? Yeah, it was like you say. There was a pub in every corner, and I did I did uh, visit them quite a bit with the Brentford players. To be honest with you, <laughs> uh, not before games, but yeah, no, it was it was a fantastic. I mean, before. Before they built the flats behind the main end, that was a real, it was in, in early days, it was a real big steeping cop to the left-hand side as you come out the tunnel. But once the chairman sold uh, sold a bit of the land and put flats on it and it all closed it in. But uh, yeah, it was a proper mm. old football ground and sad, sad to see it go. I went up there and said cheerio to it and I managed to get a, a lump of the pitch where, oh, I stood, where, where I scored my first goal and I brought it home and put it into my, my garden. Uh, so, yeah, so very many happy memories at, at, at Griffin Park. You know, I mean, I was there as a player and there as a coach for new on 22 years. And it's a long time, you know. In a, in a, the Brentford fans, they didn't get to say goodbye properly as well. You know, obviously the last game, they couldn't go to the last games of last season. And they also didn't get the excitement of the first games this season and going to it as well. It's like, I mean, I know obviously far more, far bigger things have happened in the last year, but it is a real shame when you've played, you've watched some football somewhere for so long. You know, so, yeah, it must be really difficult. And like you say, going going to that new ground, which I I have seen the new ground, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, so we're we're all waiting to go back up there. We've all been invited as ex players to go out on the pitch uh, when they first get their next game at home when all the crowds are there. So that that will be a special day. So uh, yeah, it's it's strange that no one's actually had a chance to get in it at the moment, but it is it is. It, I mean, the club needed it really. You know, time and time has taken its toll on 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 Griffin Park. Bless it and. Uh, but yeah, some happy memories. But football's moved on now, isn't it? You know, football's moved on, the stadium's moved on. So you've got to go with the flow, really. You've got to go with it. Yeah. And as football fans, we're looking forward to getting down there as well. We're, we're both ground hoppers, Peter and I. We've been to tons of ground. So we're looking looking forward to ticking that one off. Looks like an absolute cracker, doesn't it? The yeah, stadium, yeah. I must admit. Right. 
yeah, and you're right, they did, they did need to move on, certainly. Um, anyway, that's enough talking about people in the wrong coloured stripes. Um, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> take a quick break there. When we come back in part two, we're going to talk about proper coloured stripes, blue and white ones, um, where we'll talk about your um, career behind the scenes at the Albion and what's going on in more recent times. Back in a moment. Okay, so welcome back to part two of this special where we have Bob Booker with us as our special guest. Um, hope you're coping all right so far, Bob. Still hanging in there? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, you know, your questions have been great. You haven't gone too deep on anything at the moment, so I'm coping with it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's enjoyable and it's, it's nice to reminisce and talk about some old times because you can easily forget about it along the way. So, uh, yeah, it makes you feel nice just to bring the memories up again and discuss them and hopefully people can enjoy the, the stories as well. So that's what it's all about. Especially in these yeah. times where we can't get down and watch football, so podcasts and things like this, I think, have been a good offset for everybody to get involved in. Yeah, yeah, it's been good um, doing these um, through the lockdown period, and we've done quite a few of them actually. And it's good to good to get on people who can talk about the game and give an insight behind the scenes, which is uh, which certainly what's happening here with this. So I'm really glad to have you with us and. In this part two, we're just going to get on to now talking about um, your time with the Albion, which started at the turn of the century, didn't it? <laughs> Sound makes everyone sound old. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you had six years stints with the club initially. Um, and initially that was under Mickey Adams, wasn't it? So tell us about how all that came about. Well, Mickey, I, I, I played against Mickey uh, as a player, but I didn't, I didn't personally know him until he came to Brentford as manager. And I was the youth team manager at Brentford at the time. And uh, we heard that uh, Mickey Adams was coming in with Glenn Cockrell uh, as his assistant. Mm -hmm. And we were told to be down the dressing rooms and Mickey Adams going to come down and introduce himself uh, as the new manager. So we waited down the dressing room, myself and the assistant manager, uh, which was Kevin Locke at the time, the, uh, used to play for West Ham, who was Bobby Moore's understudy. And Mickey Adams come into the dressing room and uh, he just introduced himself and he said, listen, you know, I'm, I've come in as manager now. Uh, I'm not going to make any changes at the moment. I'm going to look at the setup, and, and, and if everything fits well with everything, then we'll carry on. But I've been told by the chairman, if I want to bring my own staff in, you know, we can, we can juggle it around. So really, you're sort of on trial, really. Just show me what you got. And that was it. Well, I was the youth team manager, so... I wasn't due to have too much connection with, with him in the first team and the reserve because I was just doing the youth side. But as time, we sort of hit it off quite quite quickly, sort of socially, really. Uh, and he, 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 got, he started to get me involved in the reserves in the first team a lot more. You know, when the youth team didn't have a game, I was travelling with the first team and, and, and sort of learning my trade just un, under him, really. And we had a difficult season. We, we, we just managed, we, just, we got relegated. We just managed not to stay up, which was disappointing because... He'd done a really good job. Uh, mm. And just as we started the second season, then he he he's, he was told that he was getting the sack. So mm. he'd come to say his cheerios after introducing himself after that first year. And he said, I've, I've been watching you work and I like the way you work. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to keep an eye out for you. And I said, well, cheers, Gaffer. Thanks a lot. Like and it was a few months later, then he got the Brighton job. Mm. And uh, Alan Cork decided to go to Swansea. And Mickey Adams rung me up and, and, and asked me if I would be interested in coming down to Brighton. And I said, what, as your youth team manager? And he said, no, as my assistant manager. 
well, that was a big step up for me because I, you know, I hadn't sort of really done much at that sort of time really with the reserves in the first team. So I was, you know, I was, I thought, yeah, what a great opportunity for me. So I went and I went and saw my chairman at, at Brentford and and told him of uh, Brighton's interest, and he said, yeah, you, you can go with our with our best wishes. So it was as quick as that, really. So I came straight down, and uh, and that's how I be, that's how I joined the Albion, really, under under Mickey Adams. Hmm. And obviously, had plenty of highs there. With there's back to back promotions, wasn't there? Um, a year and a half of which was with Mickey before he moved on to Leicester. Um, I'm reading articles on it, and you you seem to have described something very similar. In fact, I think you've alluded to it. Something really similar to the old Wimbledon. Uh, philosophy of backs against the wall with Dean was seen as this ridiculous venue that was obviously just temporary because we'd become homeless and it was seen as a disadvantage for us and the idea it seems was to turn that around and actually do the opposite say make this a disadvantage for everyone else because it's so weird but actually embrace what we got have a gallows kind of yeah backs against the wall spirit toughen Mm -hmm. everything up and um, you had a lot of tough characters in that team as we sort of alluded to the Dave Bassett kind of style um, would that you're, be a, a fair perception? Oh, you're spot on. It reminded me so much. I mean, I had back-to-back promotions as a player with Sheffield United, and then I ended mm. up having back-to-back promotions with 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 Brighton as an assistant manager or coach. And it it was the, the similarities were massive. You know, the squad of players that Dave Bassett had put together, and the squad of players that Mickey Mickey Adams had put together was so similar. And you're right. Mm. We, you know, at Brighton, like the the squad we had. You know, people feared, especially with Dean, it became our fortress, and we was the underdogs. You know, we didn't have a stadium, we didn't have any money to get any players. You know, but hmm. you know, we had the catalyst. We had Charlie Oakway, we had Richard Carpenter, Danny Cullop, Gary Art, K- uh, Kerry Mayo, Nathan Jones, and then what with Bobby Zamora and Michelle Kuipers, it's a hell of a mix of a squad of players. And it reminded me hmm. so much of being a player in that type of team, and then to seeing one that Mickey had put together. I mean, they was a ruthless bunch and it was great to work with. And I don't think, and you're probably quoting on this, that there'll ever be a squad of players at Brighton as powerful as that group uh, on and off the pitch. <laughs> so, you know, they sometimes, you know, and, and they really, a bit like Dave Bassett, I think the players really respected Mickey. They don't, didn't always like him because, you know, he was, a, he was a hard man to please. You know, you didn't get many well-dones from him as a staff member or as a player. But he hmm. set his stall out what he wanted. And if you wanted to come along on that ride that he was going to make, that journey, as he used to call it, then you'll be all right. And, you know, we had that group of players that weren't on massive money, that would run for a brick wall for him or for the club. They believed in each other. And, you know, people didn't like coming down to Withdean. A lot of people say to me at the, at the Amex now, you know, oh, I'm so glad we left Withdean. Yes, we are glad because that's the way football was going. But I absolutely love Withdean. It was our own little, you know, it was a bit of a crap hole for us, but it was our crap hole, wasn't it? You know, we were proud of it. <laughs> there was rubbish yeah. everywhere, you know, all the seats were broken, the dressing rooms were, you know, not the best. But we did embrace it, you know, the training ground up at university, you know, we used to call it dog muck corner, you know, and there's dog muck everywhere on, on the pitch. <laughs> but they just, they just, you know, the players just didn't, you know, they washed their own kit. You know, you'd never see that sort of thing today. You know, players that take their own kit home, you know, clean their own boots. It's just, it, it, it was a like, you know, and it was a, like a love story. We was, we was a one big happy family. We didn't, have a, we didn't have a big lot of staff down at the office. We had Derek Allen and Sally and uh, Edward David, 
and that was about it really you know you look you go to the amex now and there's, there's 96 staff on the first floor so yeah, yeah you know, that's right that's the way that football you know it had to go but i i, I mean i love the amex the fantastic stadium and but i did i did love the with being years it was it was something a bit special yeah well I mean, in that article I mentioned, the, the, the Football Pink, you, you were quoted as saying the Wood Dean was a lovely, tight, homely community. We didn't have a lot of staff. We had a standard 6,000 fans. They were passionate. They sat in the rain. We were together in it, friends, staff, directors, all in together. Nothing was going to stop us doing what we were trying to achieve. And I think mm. from the fans' point of view, which is obviously part of that, um, we felt the same way. It was... Mm. It was something ridiculous, but it was a, a, f- a fantastic, fun time, not only because we had four promotions in the 12 years over the whole period, but also yeah. for the fact that there, we had a lot of humour. There was a lot of funny moments, you know. Mm. You couldn't have got wetter than we did <laughs> over and over again at that stadium, well, that, and I'm, I'm sure... Mickey always used to tell me to stand outside the dugout in front of the self stand because he, he was all right, but he said, if they're sitting in the rain, then you've got to stand in it. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mind that. Now you're right. It was it was a special group of people, staff and players, uh, and I, I like to I like to think, and I'm very proud to be part of that initiation and on what Mickey brought to the football club. And I think he was the I think he was the springboard. You know, we can look at all different managers in our world. They've done at Brighton and Gus Poyer, and you got promotion and 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 Chris Hugh, and it's great. But I, I, you know, it had to start somewhere, and I really believe in my heart of hearts that, that Mickey Adams really started that revolution. Yeah, I think it was. It was the first point in the on the pitch um, story of the modern time for us. Really, it was the first time yeah. we really were coming back from a long, miserable period. Um, we've got where well, obviously Peter's co-hosting with me. He's having some internet problems. He is still on there. Uh, we can't see him, which is maybe maybe a blessing. I don't know who, <laughs> but he is lingering in the background. Um, he'll try and endeavour to, to chuck in a couple of questions if he can. But if you're wondering why he's not saying much, he's uh, struggling to do so. If you did want to say anything about the Woodine era, Peter, by all means, um, jump in at this point. Um, but you know, just from my side of it, I, I love the, the Woodine era. It was good fun. Um, just that we had this guy called Keith. Um, hello, Keith, if you're listening, he usually is. I've said this before, but he used to get the teas in for everyone and you'd, you'd have this huge pile of bloody polystyrene cups uh, by the time you got there at half time because he always had to use the loo. Yeah, he had to go to the loo before half time every time. So he was, uh, he was there with those. And, you know, that was all part of a running joke and all that sort of thing. You'd always congregate in the same areas. Everything was smaller scale. And you use the word community in that quote. And I think that's what it felt like. It was really, like everyone really did come together. And I think the way that Mickey Adams and, and you guys behind the scenes set the club up in that Wimbledon style, crazy gang type thing. Mm. I think that just fitted the bill perfectly for the time. It just seemed to be the right. The right uh, vibe. Yeah. We didn't have a we didn't have a lot of staff in them days. You know, there was Mickey and myself. We had Malcolm Stewart as the physio. We had John Keely as mm. the sort of kit man. He doubled up as a goalkeeping coach. That was probably the four of us. You know, we didn't have mm. sort of psychologists and scientists. We was the psychologists. We was the fitness guys. We was the analyst. You know, we went out watching the games. You, you know, you you mucked in. You know, some. You know, I, I used to go and put the kit out on a Saturday morning with the coach driver when, on away games. You know, you just you just did them. You just all mucked in and got it done. You know, and uh, that was the beauty of it. I think it, that was the, the togetherness that uh, saw us through some difficult times. You know, and, and got the success. Like you said, you know, four promotions out of fifteen is phenomenal, really. Uh, and mm. I, I'm, I'm I know sort of most Brighton fans are really proud of that. And they, you know, they come on and especially the ones that sort of 
you know, used to go to the Golds and I played there as a player, you know, to lose that football ground and then the ones that travelled to Gillingham, you know, when I finally see the annex, I, re- I really feel for them fans because they, you know, yourselves, you've, you've done that journey, which is, you know, that's what it's all about being a football fan, you know, to come from Gillingham and with Dean and, and now have your, have your football club at the Amex, you know, you should be very proud of yourselves. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be there now. I have to say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to turn it back, even though we've treasured the times at Woodding. Certainly yeah. the Amex is something else, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the Gillingham years was, was bizarre because for two years we had, I think it was an average of about two and a half to 3,000 fans. But when you think that's away fans on a pretty irritating journey, actually, it's not even an easy journey. That's yeah. phenomenal for to watching the absolute horrendous football we were playing at the mm. time so if you put that in context with what Mickey was doing when he was uh once he got to with Dean um yeah. you know we were really ready for that upsurge and it didn't matter how we played we, we, we played a certain it was quite a industrious sort of style wasn't it at first and we relied on a few good obviously Bobby helps but things like the, yeah. the trick of having Paul Watson take those free kicks that would curl yeah. in the far post if no one touched it so you had that yeah. dual worry and about I- Bobby hitting it. Yeah, I think the pitch played a part as well. I mean, it was it wasn't the best to start with, and we, you know, we had mm. the players to adapt to that to that surface. You know, as the years went on, you know, and and things got better. You know, the pitch did get better. The dressing was got a little bit better, but it was still a bit of a level. I think once we got into the championship and the pitch was became really really good, it, it you know away teams sort of got used to coming down there then, you know, they detached themselves from the surroundings, which they couldn't do at first, you know, there are no fans and your away fans are, you know, 10, 10 miles away across the running track, you know, and things like that. And, uh, uh, you know, no spare balls and, and things like that. So mm. uh, I, I always remember one story when, when Steve Coppel come uh, into the, into the club and I hadn't met him and he, he, he said to me, Bob, I, I, I'm going to meet you this afternoon. I'd like you to meet, meet you down at Withdean. And I thought, well, that was quite strange. I thought he'd want to meet the players. So I met him down at Withdean and he took me around the dress rooms and he took me to the away dress room. And he said, I want this painted, the worst mauve you can find. <laughs> and he said, oh, at the start of the season, he said, I want the radiators switched on so they can't turn them off. And I want you to give them the, the worst kicking in balls that are scratched and flat as you can find on a match day. And it straight away, he was trying to put his mark, you know, as, as a manager does, trying to put his little bits and pieces and I find yeah. I, I found it interesting. So you know, Steve Steve was great. Then little attention to detail was was fantastic. So yeah, mm, yeah, that's great. The other thing I just remember was um, there was a time when we had a I think we had a poor performance under Mickey, and he came out of the press and made a comment about soft southerners not having enough steel in them. And the, uh, we, and the irony being, um, I think two thirds of the team were from see, north of the Watford Gap, weren't they? So. Um, do you remember that incident? And were there other moments like it that you, you thought, oh, <laughs> not oh, sure about that one, Mickey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's bad, mad, Dave. I mean, because there's a few lost, Sheffield United connections. I lost you a little bit. I you're back. I lost you a bit there. I think, was, was you on about the, when we got beat away in the cup game? I think it was that, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. I think it was something like Scumthorpe away and we... We we got beat miserably. I think it was the FA Cup, and he, uh, we didn't get back to about two in the morning. Hmm. And normally it was my job. To, it was my job to go down the coach and tell the players, you know, they was having a day off or whatever, or they could have a beer or whatever. So as we got closer to Brighton, Mickey said, "Go and tell Paul Rogers and tell all the lads I'll see him at eight o'clock round the pond. They're going to be running for forty five minutes, a bit like Harry did with with us." Hmm. Uh, 
And of course, you know, that was the, I had to I had, I was only the messenger, so I got absolutely slaughtered by the players. You know, we're in tomorrow morning. Yep, you didn't you didn't you didn't play for forty five minutes, so and we was over the we was just over the bridge there and the players ran around the pond for forty five minutes. Uh and once Mickey just cycled off on his bike at the end of that and said, See you in the morning and then of course I got it from the lads then, didn't I? You know, Charlie Oakway and that like got hold of me and threw me straight in the pond. Uh, <laughs> but that was that that was that was part of the course. Like I I used to have to take the, you know, that was part of being assistant manager. That was I was the link between them and the manager. You know, if they took out their frustrations, they wouldn't take it out on him. They take it out on me. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, used to, I used to get it all the time. <laughs> but I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's all good fun. I mean, obviously, the Sheffield United links, obviously, Mickey Adams himself, he's a Sheffield boy, a Sheffield United fan, isn't he? And uh, Chris Wilder was briefly with us, who, of course, went on to be Sheffield United's manager to good effect. Um, but in terms of that tough spirit, going back to that, when I think. It might have been you yourself that I heard the anecdote from on uh, on one of the, uh, the Zoom things during the summer, um, talking about Peter Taylor coming in. And when he came in, he said something along the lines of, right, do your training how you normally do. Let's just see that first and go from there. And then yeah. they all went piling in on each other. Was it you that told us that story? I think it was. It was, yeah. It, again, it was, it was a bit like the, the Steve Couple thing. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't met Peter Taylor. Obviously, I knew that he'd been, he'd been caretaker England manager and gave David Beckham his his captaincy and things like that. But I didn't really know a lot of Pete. I knew him as a player, what a great player he was with the great left foot for Tottenham and Palace. Mm. Uh, and again, I, we, I met him at the training ground, you know, and as we just had a quick chat and I, I gave him a quick rundown on the players and what have you. And because uh, Mickey had left quite quickly and then Peter just exactly that. He told me to do your normal Friday morning. So I took them off for a warm up and they was all asking me, what's he like? I said, well, I don't know. I've only just met him. I've only known him, you know, I've only met him sort of half an hour ago and he said, we're just going to do a normal Friday morning. So, and they was all badging me for questions. Danny Cullick, what's he like? Is he, you know, who's he going to play? What system is he going to play? Oh, I don't know. I'm only just and then, so I set up a little seven aside, which we used to have on a Friday and blew the whistle. And of course, all hell broke loose. You know, Charlie Oakway's doing a two-footer on Nathan Jones and Gary Arts sliding on Bobby Zamora and Danny Cullick's got Kerry Mayo in a headlock and all this sort of stuff on a Friday morning. And he, he stepped forward and he looked at me and he said, what the hell's going on here, Bob? I said, well, we're training gaffer. And he said, no, we don't have no tackling on a Friday before a game. And I'm looking at all the players and they're all looking at me thinking, well, this is what we do on a Friday morning. So he said, no, no tackling, no tackling anymore on a Friday. Of course, that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to get a sweat on and get involved. And so once he'd done his sort of Friday morning, the players used to stay behind and I used to run the bollocks off them for 20 minutes to get a sweat on. So <laughs> but that, that's what they wanted. That's what they did. And he, 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 you know, he found that hard to believe that's how we used to do it. But that's what Mickey had installed in them. And that, that's the way we work. You know, we trained hard. And if you got injured on a Friday morning, then someone else comes in and takes your place. I mean, the irony of that is uh, I don't remember there being a lot of injuries, uh, particularly not, not out the out the ordinary anyway, during that era. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know yeah. it didn't seem to do them any harm, bizarrely, uh, which no, it could right. easily have done. Well, long if Danny Cullip's going to attack, you just make sure you jump nice and high, didn't you? You know, you know <laughs> about the way <laughs> or jump a limp, load but of no, Olympic no, standard no, jumpers in the team. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Well, it worked. Yeah. It worked for us. I mean, you wouldn't see it happening in the, in the modern modern day now on a Friday morning. You know that sort of train. You know that that regime of that training. But uh, listen. And you, when you're getting success and you're winning football games, you don't change the plan, you keep going, you know. It's uh, yeah. proofs in the pudding, 
I haven't interviewed too many players yet, ex-players or current players, but one question I think I'm always going to ask them is um, about who was the best trainer, because I noticed when we had on Seagulls Over London, we had Gary Dicker on one of them. And I, I noticed his eyes lit up when we asked that question. He was busy. I can't remember his answer, actually. But he was busy mm. talking about, um, you know, this player and that player. Who were the best trainers and what stood out for you behind the scenes in that era? Under Mickey uh, and, and later as well. Yeah, but, man, yeah, I mean, you know, Mickey used to, on a, mon- on a Monday to a Wednesday, you know, we, we physically used to work them quite hard. You know, if there's going to have a day off mm. on a Wednesday, they, was, they, know, they knew about it on a Tuesday. Uh, you know, so you earn you earn your days off, really. Uh, I mean, there was all the things with that, that squad of players as well. Is you know, and it's I can't remember many bad eggs. You know, there wasn't much mm. poison. Once you get a bit of poison into a football team, it, it, it can spread very very quickly. But with that group of players, a bit like Sheffield United, sometimes they saw it out themselves. You didn't have to point the finger. They knew if they'd done wrong and. You know, I remember you, we used to come off at Withing sometimes and we'd be sort of drawing nil-nil, but, you know, we're having a go. And Mickey Mickey used to say to me, do you want to be good cop or bad cop? Because that's what he used to call us, you know. And I said, I'll be I'll be bad cop. So we'd go in at half-time and I would sort of rip their throats out and tell them what I didn't think they were doing. And then and then Mickey would pick them up again. Or the other way around, when Mickey would bring them down, and I would have to bring them up and put my arm around them. Sometimes you didn't even have to have a team talk. You know, I can remember times coming to that dressing room where Danny Cullett will have Bobby Zamora by the throat up against the wall. You better start mm. running around, otherwise you're costing me my bonus, Bobby. Yeah. You know, job was done. You go out, you win one nil. Bobby, Bobby Zamora scores and everyone's happy. Yeah. So there was a group of players that could sort of dressing room out themselves. You know, it was a ruthless dressing room, but it was, it was, it was a great one to be in. You know, different, different breed of player. You know, you, you live by the sword. You know, if, you, if the if the fingers pointed at you, you either take it on the chin and get on with it, or you fall by the wayside. And that's the way we used to work. You know, so so I wouldn't say there's any bad trainers. I mean, yeah, I mean as as time went on, I mean, you know, there's always an instance. Leon Knight, when Leon Knight comes to the club, and he won't mind me telling you this story if he, if he's listening at some stage. He could be quite hard work sometimes because Leon Knight was a fantastic finisher, and that's what he wanted to do all day in training. Well, unfortunately, hmm. sometimes you've got, to, you've got to do something right for the team, whether it's a bit of shake or a bit of pattern of play. And, and Leon didn't really get that very well. So there's many a time that he sort of got sent in early from training because or we'd have a bit of a row. And then I'll, I'll just have a chat with him after training when everyone's gone home. I said, come on, little man, what's, what's wrong? He said, Bob, you know, I, I want to do some finishing. And I said, I'll tell you what you do then. You come in tomorrow morning at nine o'clock before training at 10. And I'll, I'll bring in a bag of balls and I'll, I'll, I'll do an hour's one-to-one with you and do some finishing. And uh, your face lights up. You do that for me? Well, yeah, as long as you play ball with me when we're doing our bits. So you play the game with him and give him what he wants, either after training or before training. And then he's, he's got to produce when it's a team, when it's a team ethic, work ethic. Uh, so that, you know, it's everybody, every player has to be man-managed differently. Some you've got to put your arm around them. Some you got to tell them off and they need telling off or they need a bollocking. Some you can't be too hard because they might crumble. So it is a juggling act. And that's where the man management comes in, I think, from a manager. Uh, and, yeah. and that Mickey was particularly good at. And, and Steve Copper was really, really good at. And Mark McGee uh, and Dave Bassett and people like that. You know, their man, man management skills. Russell Slade was another one. He's fantastic. You know, his man management with the players. Uh, they really, really respected him, like, you know. Yeah. 
And after Peter Taylor, and then obviously we had Martin Hinchwood in at the beginning of the season after that, um, Steve Koppel came in. Eventually we had Mark McGee uh, take over from him. And then we went um, into Dean Wilkins' territory, which I think was just after the time you were leaving, or around that time, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, just a quick word about um, Hinch, uh, Steve Koppel and Mark McGee. What, what would you want to say really about that, that sort of period with the Albion? Um, what stood out for you? Well, Obviously, the Millennium Final was a, was a superb day. Yeah. Out, but, uh... um, you know, it, it was a strange one for me because as a, as a manager left, you know, Dick, Dick Knight made it, you know, the chairman, uh, he made it clear that I was staying. So it was always a bit mm. of pressure because I was only going to stay if I got on with the other manager and he was happy with the way I worked. So yeah. straight away, and they all work, they all work different. You know, some you, some you mix socially with, you know, I used to mix with uh, Mickey socially and Mark McGee very socially, a little bit with Steve. Didn't mix much with Peter Taylor. Yes, with Hinch. So, you know, you, it, long as you're long as you're doing or you're ahead of the game as an assistant manager, you've got to know what time you're travelling, who's travelling, who's injured, what we're doing today, what hotels we're staying in, what are the players eating, what coaching mm-hmm. session we're going to do. So, soon as he has, soon as he, soon as he asks you a question, you've got to have the answer. You've got to be one ahead, one ahead of the game. That's, that, I think, that's how managers and assistants. Man, you almost sort of got to work in tandem, but you've got to be slightly ahead of him so that he knows all he's got to think about. Hopefully, he's picking a team and you're picking all the bits up, but you're there for him when he's having a bad time. So they all they all work in different ways, uh, and like I say, some of them you end up working uh, uh, socialising with outside of football. Some of them I didn't, but uh, it was nice because you wasn't always working the same way you know it's a little bit different with Stevie Koppel he would probably let me do most of the training and he would shoot off home but he's very meticulous in his in his homework with with, with the team Peter Taylor used to do nearly all the training so I was sort of not involved in that much that much coaching but I was there for him Hinch we was close because we'd worked together on the youth setup uh, like that Mark McGee we used to share the training between us Uh, same with Russell Slade so you know, I, I had a great relationship with Mark McGee and Russell Slade as, as as well as Mickey and Hinch as well, really, and Stevie. So different relationships, different characters. It's just the way getting the job done the way they want it done. Yeah, yeah. Sounds perfectly good, doesn't it? It's good to have a variety, definitely. And that's um with that promotion with the um promotion by the Millennium Stadium, Mark McGee, how good was that? What what a great weekend that was. That was amazing. <laughs> you must Ah, uh, it was on the back of my neck just gone up when you just mentioned it, really, to be fair. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, we went up there a couple of days before, didn't we, train before, but again, mm. you know, Mark McGee, he, he, he was a great, uh, He was his preparation for that cup final was absolutely spot on, the way he went about everything and the, the mm. training with the lads and, you know, the way he, he produced it. Uh, I, I always remember it because... Yes, it was it was a great result for us and, and, and took us that promotion. But his team talk, most of the work had been done. We had all, we'd been out for a warm up, and normally we used to come back in and then he'd do quite a, quite a sort of little team talk then. And he didn't do one. And I sort of looked at him. I thought, you know, what's going to happen here? And he hadn't told me about it. He said, "Go and get me a flip chart." So I went and got him a flip chart and I set it up by the door just as the players were going to go out because I'd already done the free kicks. So it was all on the walls. Players knew their jobs. They'd been warmed up. They're ready to go out. He didn't even do a team talk. He just had a flip chart, and on the flip chart, he had like you know the the Grimsby's, the Northamptons, no disrespect, the Berries. He had all the lower lower league teams, and then he flipped yeah. it over to Birmingham, Leeds United, Ipswich, and you know Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. Sheffield yeah. United. And he just said, "Where do you want to be?" 
where do you want to be, lads? Simple as that. And they just went, come on, let's go. Uh, and coming in, coming into the ground, I remember the sea of fans everywhere. And as you come into the Millennium Stadium, you go down a tunnel with the gates and my family would stand by the gates. And I could see my sister and my, my dad and everybody standing at the corner. And just before we got to the ground, Mark McGee told the coach driver to pull over and he gave me a CD and I put it in the CD player and it was You Could Be Heroes for One Day by David Bowie. And they played that full nice. blast as we, was, as we was coming through the gates and the, that plays, that, that coach was rocking. The players were, yeah. they were ready. Yeah, they were ready. They, you know, we, you know, you, you can't say you're guaranteed to win that game, but I had every confidence that we was going to get there with the way they were prepared, the way they were talking, the way they were acting. I couldn't, it's easy to say afterwards, but I couldn't really see any other result. And, you know, the master stroke, went, the master stroke as well as, you know, Mark had sort of threatened to leave the little man out, Leon Knight, which played into our hands because he played and he scored the winning goal. Yeah, so that's that little you, shuffle penalty. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's the man management. You know, a couple of days before, he wasn't too sure whether he was going to be playing. And then mm. that just that just pecked him up a little bit and he, he got a little bit more out of him. And then if you want someone to score a penalty in the, in the 79th minute or 76th minute, he was your man. Yeah, and it wasn't the greatest final, but yeah, everything about that day, it seemed as if, and from what you've just said about things on the coach as well, that everything was planned and everything was, was set up just right. And the attitude what, was right. What, what we won it tactically, didn't we? Yeah, what a following as well by the supporters, you know, absolutely. Hmm. You know, you know, they just come from everywhere that day. It just shows the, you know, the, the strength of the support that we had. You know, we were only getting 6,000 and I'm not sure how many we took there. It was... Uh, it was close yeah, on the it was, third. Yeah, close nearly, nearly 40,000, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 35, 40,000. Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a very special day, you know. It was, uh, and it was a great coach trip home on, you know, Mark, Mark McGee straight after the game, he gave me 500 quid and he said, go and get as much beer and wine as you can for the coach. <laughs> so me and one of the, uh, one of the kit men, we went, we stopped at the offie and uh, we come out there with trolleys full of beer and champagne and wine and, a lot of the girlfriends and the wives were on the coach coming home. It was a fantastic trip home, I have to say. It was absolutely brilliant. One that I'll always remember. Uh, I think I drove yeah. home that night. I think I was the last one that found it. And I was getting off the coach and I took it in my car and I, I took it home that night. So I spent, had the trophy at my house that, that evening. So, <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Did you curl up in bed with it? Was that one of yeah. those? Yeah. Spooned it in bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a little um, bit better. Michelle Kuypers had dropped it. But, uh, was it Kuypers? I thought um, Dick Knight had admitted to doing it. Was that not the case? Michelle, was it Kuypers? Uh, someone threw it. <laughs> no disrespect to Michelle Kuypers, he dropped it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he could have kicked it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. No, it's, it's a great story. It's a great day. I mean, my, from my side of it, the, the one memory I've got, abidingly, apart from all the all the usual stuff that everyone remembers, well, well, two things. One was the, um, the, I think the Bristol City fans had a ban banner, some sort of like, thanks for coming or something, you know, unlucky, next, see you next time or whatever. And, and yeah. that, that probably helped. I don't know if the players saw that, whether that helped motivate them or not. Not that it sounded like they needed it. Um, but the other one was I drove in. We were actually staying with in Bristol with a Bristol City fan, albeit a casual one. He wasn't at the game. And his wife, who's Spanish, um, who that's how we knew them. Um, and so we drove in, we, we got the park and ride from Ninian Park, car park ground, 
uh, that that one got in we were there really early so we had a good old wander around cardiff we arrived in all sort of the brighton areas the drop-off points because we got there early we went for a nice long wander and we got down to the water side somewhere and we found a nice place and we said oh we might eat outside because it was a blazing hot day wasn't it and mm. um you could only eat inside i think or there was some weird there was some some weird arrangement so we we went inside had something to eat relaxing having a nice time i wasn't with any any mates we were meeting up with them later so just me and the wife and when we finally walked back outside it had completely filled up from being empty it was a <laughs> sea of red Wow. <laughs> it was like that advert. Do you remember that advert where there's a bloke in blue surrounded by people in red or vice versa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like that. And I was I had to walk through literally thousands of Bristol City fans all giving me sick. I was in a Brighton top, obviously. Yeah. Um and there's a whole load of stuff about Danny Wilson's cider army or whatever it was. And oh man, it was cool, it's all good nature, but it was it was horrendous. Yeah. I thought the walk is the walk of shame before the, the game. Walk of shame. <laughs> thankfully yeah. it was a walk of um, of pride afterwards after we got the result Definitely. but yeah it was a classic it was almost like a cliche that was it's uh it was brilliant stuff um so yeah so bob after all those happy days um you got invited back didn't you by mickey who came back himself to to manage the club for a second stint for a season or so in 2008 tell mm. us about that because it was wasn't the greatest stint for for mickey was it unfortunately um and I think he's gone on record as saying he probably shouldn't have come back at that time, having sort of yeah. s- slightly it's tarnished always, his, his earlier record. Well, it, I don't know whether it tarnished it. It's always difficult, you know, when when you've had when you've had success at the football club, and you know he he, he loved he loved Brighton Football Club, uh, mm. you know, and hopefully he still does. But you know, when when the opportunity does arise again, you mm. know, sometimes your heart rules your head, doesn't it? And I think, you know. It was never going to be the same, but you, you try and think that it might might touch somewhere near it. It was a different squad of players, you know. The football club had changed quite a bit, uh, staff staff wise and things and that. And you know, so you know, Mickey Mickey called me, got me back. You know, I was I wasn't doing anything. I was sort of sunning myself in Mallorca at the time when I got the phone call, and I just jumped on the first plane and and come home, and was you know wanted to get back involved again. But uh, it didn't work out the way we wanted. Sometimes that's it. You have to take that on the chin. You know, Mickey probably regrets it the way it happened, and but it, you, you can't change it. You know, it was to, if we probably thought it was going to be exactly the same as the first time, we was probably kidding ourselves. But you, you try and think that you want to try and emulate that that success a little bit, and uh, I think his heart and my heart ruled that we wanted to get back involved in it, but uh, sadly it it didn't happen. So I just hope the fans don't sort of think bad of, of that era, you know, it's just one of those football cliches that happened, you know, it didn't it didn't happen and, uh, you know, still try and remember the good times that we brought to the football club, but you, you've got to take the, you've got to take the rough with the smooth, we didn't produce, we didn't win football matches and that's what you're governed on at the end of the day, if you don't get results then, you know, as I found out a couple of times, you you, you pay the price and uh, that comes with the territory of being in, involved in football as a manager or an assistant manager, if it's not working then you got to, you don't know when you're going to get released or get sacked you know it can happen very very quickly uh, after a few games and as you see it in the modern day now you know don't see many managers that last a season or mm. two seasons if any longer so it's it's, it's a results governed business now and uh, that's what you have to play by 
Yeah, and obviously there's, there's countless examples of it not working out coming back. Uh, Kenny Dalglish, Liverpool, loads of others up and down the land. I, I don't think Howard Kendall's second spell at Everton was great, was it? Um, we had Alan Mullery, of course, came back at the Albion, who I'm sure you've seen in the uh, the halls at the Amex here and there. Yep. Um, yep. You know, his second spell was obviously not a patch on his first because he got us in the no. top flight for our first mm. time ever. Um, but you, you, you were still around when Mickey left um, to see the Russell Slade era, weren't you? And the Great Escape. Um, yeah. Having done it with Sheffield United, you, you were involved in a different capacity doing it for the Albion. We had to go on a good run, didn't we, towards the end? Had to pick up a few wins, yeah. including on the final day, I think. Mm. I remember it. Uh, it was, that was the it only was, time I was in the North Stand that day, actually, with the yeah. with thing. Hmm. Yeah, and it was it was a hell of a turnaround. I didn't know Russell when he was appointed, but I, I knew of him because he obviously worked at Sheffield United in the youth in the youth system. So I knew he was a blade. I knew he was a Sheffield lad. Uh, yeah, not another connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, it was a great connection. Again, we did. It's very similar to to Mickey. Really, we we did sort of hit it off fairly fairly quickly. And I, you know, I I, I struck up a great relationship very very quickly with Russell and his family. You know, I helped him. I helped him move into his digs when he when he came down. Uh, you know, so we we spent a lot of time together socially for that for that season. And the players really responded to his enthusiasm. You know, when he's running along the touch line and, and throwing his hat off and things like that and the crowd took to that you know there was a great buzz yeah. about the place you know the players and he made some good astute signings you know at the right time and you know you always felt as if the the the, the survival was on once he'd got his teeth into it and started to put his mark on it in a very short short amount of time which is very difficult to do because you don't normally get enough time as a football manager to put your mark on it but uh you know he's very jovial in training and the lads the lads liked him and they respected him. They knew he was the gaffer, but they, you know, they really produced for him. And uh, it was, a, it was, a, it was a great, you know, to be part of that that survival team again was another great story for for the Brighton fans to to get behind. It really was. Yeah, I was with um, the youngest of the Tipple brothers. Some some Brighton fans I know in the North Stand. I said one of I think the only time I ever went in the North Stand of the we did we're in the front row and. Uh, Chris Tibble got uh, Gary Hart's boots that day. <laughs> I remember. I also remember being one of the first on the pitch because it was a. We were in the front row, right near the yeah. players' tunnel end of the of the north, um, i.e. the sort of the west end. And um, I remember when we went, went on the pitch, Russell Slade. I remember his face. He, he looked slightly startled by the reaction. I don't think <laughs> he could quite believe we were so excited about survival or what it was. I don't know. Yeah. He looked. He looked quite taken aback. Was it? Did he? Is that how it felt? Did he? Do you think he was a little bit overwhelmed by the whole scenario? He's pro- he's probably thinking, and what bonus he was on, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, I think he was very proud of what he what he did in that short amount of time. Like I said before, I think he, he was, you know, it was a great achievement for him, and uh, you know, he he, uh, he 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 just had a nice awe about him. And he come in and he was easy to get on with, but you know, he he made training was interesting and fun and. You know, we had a good structure about us. He was disciplined and, you know, he had his certain way of doing things. And the players, it's the same as anything. You know, you can put what you like to a group of players. You can put them to any shape. But if they don't if they don't believe in what you're trying to show them, hmm. it counts for nothing. It doesn't matter what manager you are. You know, if you Jose Mourinho and you've got all that, all that, all them players at your disposal at Man United. But if you can't put them to whatever shape you're going to play, whether it be 5-3-2 or 4-4-2, and get them in the shape and get them to do what you want them to do uh, structurally, it ain't going to work. Hmm. It ain't gonna work. They, the players have got to believe in you as, as staff members 
what you're trying what you're trying to achieve. And if you if you start getting on a good run and, and, and winning games, players love that. You know, if they start winning games week in and week out, it, it, it just becomes the norm. As as bad as losing games becomes, you know, it so it's, it's just getting that balance. But uh, yeah, he certainly put his mark on the players, and I think you know they really enjoyed playing for him. Yeah. A couple of quick questions. I, I don't know if you've got any, any more time, if you can still hang on with us, Bob. I've got two or yep. three more things I wanted to ask you. First okay. of all, it's been said before, but I've got to ask you, get it on the record on this podcast as well. Uh, Robbie Savage's car. Can you explain? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Might as well. We've got to go through this again. <laughs> I've heard it before, but I, I love hearing it. <laughs> well, I think it was... I think it was Mickey, yeah, it was Mickey's second stint, and he obviously wanted to try and get some players in, and... Uh, at that stage, you know, Robbie Savage would have been a great name to get in. Uh, he wasn't playing. So uh, hmm. we were sitting in the ground having a nice bottle of white wine, myself and, and the gaffer. And uh, he was talking to Robbie Savage and I could hear the conversation. And all I could hear was Robbie Savage asking where he could park his Ferrari <laughs> or his Mercedes, whichever one he was going to come down in. And I'd clocked this in the conversation. So I I'd said to Mickey while he was on the phone to Robbie, tell him, Tell him it'll be fine. We'll have people looking after his car. Don't worry about it. I've got a training ground. So as soon as he put the phone in, I said, that's that's made for me. So I went down to with <laughs> Dean and I got one of the stewards coats and I, I I got this hat with some false hair and I got these, some glasses and false teeth so I, he wouldn't recognise me. And I was just walking around outside the training ground waiting for him to turn up. Of course, all the press were there and he turned up in this Mercedes car. Well, I've never seen it. It's like the night Rider. He turned up in this Mercedes car and I sort of shuffled towards him and sort of said, well, as soon as he got his car, I was the first one that he, he bumped into. And I just said, oh, you're my favourite player, Rob. I can't believe you come down to Brighton. Uh, have, you, have you got any boots in your boot that I could have? So and he's looking at me and he went, so he opened his boot up and I had a shirt. I got him to sign the shirt. Of course, all the lads are out the, looking out the little windows up at the training, <laughs> watching this going on, all the press are taking pictures. And he didn't have a clue who I was. So uh, I, I'd done him like, you know, so I was quite... It was, one of my funny moments that uh, I like to do now and again. And, of course, caught him cold. And then as soon as he got into Mickey's office, I got out of my tie. I got my training kit on and walked into the office. And he's sort of staring at me. And he, he still didn't clock it for ages until we went out until we went out training. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a good one. The lads enjoyed it. You know, that's the sort of thing you used to enjoy. But uh, Robbie saw the funny side of it. But, uh, and he did let me have a drive of his car. So it was all right in the end. Brilliant. Someone hid it in the woods, didn't they, as well, at one point? I think so, yeah, yeah. But I think because he had this special, oh, I don't know, this tracker on it, you know, if you didn't, you know, all of a sudden all the alarm used to go off and everything, if you try to drive it or something, I don't know, it was all singing, dancing, <laughs> too much too much for me. Just give me a Ford Fiesta any time. Uh, yeah, so, no, he's a good, he's a good lad. He, he took it well. He was a good lad, Rob. He was, you know, he was a, he was a nice lad to work with. He was, uh, yeah, he was a very bubbly character. I liked him a lot. Yeah, that's great. And in more recent times, you've come back to the Albion, apart from doing a certain other job, which you happen to have in common with me, um, which we're going yeah. to be getting back to, aren't we, next week? Um, yeah. I'm sort of not really looking forward to it, to be honest, teaching people yeah. to drive. Um, but apart from that, you're still doing some work with the club nowadays, aren't you? You've, you've come back, you're, you, you have got a role at the Amex. You're doing some hospitality-related work, aren't you, on match days, along with a lot of other people. Uh, formerly involved with the first team, such as I think Guy Butters is still there, isn't he? And obviously Alan Mullery and Andy yeah, Rollins. And yeah, are you Guy doing Butters something and similar to them? And Andy, right? yeah. hmm. 
Yeah, well, I, I do a, I do a sort of a, a twin job really. When once we can all get back to, I normally do a, I normally do a tour of the dressing rooms for the sponsors, the club, you know, the match sponsors on a match day. You know, I take him around the dressing rooms and tell a few stories and show him a behind the scenes a little bit with with Pauline who helps me she does a she does the match tour on a on a weekly basis I just do it on a match day with her so we just sort of you know in tandem we work it together she's got really good knowledge about the stadium and everything and I, I throw in the odd little stories uh with the punters and everything so it's quite nice and then I go off I go off to the Goldstone restaurant which is on the east side and I I host that for a match day with a hundred hundred people sitting in there having a meal uh and I just go around the tables and meet and greet and and get on the microphone and, and do a few bits and pieces and, and you know, find out who's coming. Because, you know, modern day now, we have we have supporters coming from all over the world. You know, you'd be surprised, you know, you, you start talking to someone at the table and they come over from Canada or America or Australia to see the Albion, you know, and it's it's amazing. So we have a chat with them on the microphone and I really enjoy it. It's, it's probably the next best thing to still being involved with the club and I feel very lucky and privileged that I got asked to go back to do that once I'd finally left and uh you know that you know I speak, I speak to the chairman about it now and again and he likes the work we do and you know in the lockdown time it's been very difficult but we've been out and I've, I've done you know do regular phone calls to the elderly and make sure they're getting their shopping and making sure they're okay if they're a bit vulnerable and I've been out driving and delivering uh little bet little goodie bags for, for people that have been stuck at home so the club's done really really well in in this in this difficult time you know looking after people that are a, a little bit less fortunate than ourselves so it's yeah. been really good uh, but yeah I am I am looking forward to getting back it'll be strange but uh I love it really mm. because it, it's it's a lovely it's a lovely job to do because you can you still sort of get to speak to people like yourself about the old times and with Dean and and things like that and but I can come away after match day and yes you want the album to win because it's a big part of my life but if 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 the result doesn't go well it doesn't really affect my, you know, it doesn't affect me too much. I'm disappointed because I want them to win. What I'm saying by that is, yeah. I don't feel I don't feel bad because we've got. I feel bad because we've got beaten, but I'm not responsible for that, which is not. Yeah, past yeah. It's, You can get home and have a bit of a social life, you know. You know, if, I, if yeah. we try and get beat on a Saturday now, my wife knows that we probably still might go out for a meal. But when I was assistant manager, she knows we wouldn't be going out for a meal because I'll be at <laughs> the game and thinking about how we're going to put it right. Yeah, because as fans, it it ruins your weekend if you if you've lost as a fan. But I think if you're if you're involved with the club as a player, a manager, assistant manager, whatever it is behind the scenes, you you've got you invested as much in that regard as a fan is. But it's also your job as well. So probably fans wouldn't appreciate me saying this, but it probably is even harder, isn't it? Actually, for the people involved in the club. Because they're effectively fans as well, but you you become fans of any clubs you work with for a sustained period of time, don't you? Oh, um, it is difficult, you know. And it, you, when you do your work all week and it it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. and you, you're on the back end of a defeat, you know, your whole weekend is trying to go over it and put it right, watching the video or coming in Sunday yeah. morning. Where did we go wrong? Did we do this right? Did we, was our prep right? Did we make the right substitutions at the right time? It's just constantly going through your head all the time, and you can't switch off from it. You know, I used to come home, my wife used to say, my wife would say to me, she, Nikki would say to me, you're not listening to me, are you? And I'd have to be truthful and say, no, the game, game's going on through my head. You know, yeah. that tackle or that through ball or that little defensive error or who wasn't picking up. So it, it, it does take over your life when, you know, when you're, in, when you're a manager or assistant manager or any part of a football club, you are in a bubble. You know, it, it's a massive mm. big bubble and you're, you're constantly in that bubble. And once you're out of that, 
you realise that there is life outside of football, like I have with, with my driving job now and, and things like that. But still, do we go down to the Albion and see the games and, and see the people and, and, and do my work down there? You know, it's probably, you know, it's the best next thing I could do, really. I'm really, I'm really happy with it. It's lovely. I should just mention at one point, speaking of drive instruction, one time I actually got somebody to do Pass Plus. You're going to love this. Um, I got them to do the motorways. Uh, I said, right, let's do about four hours worth um, on the same day in two stints, either side of a football match. He was He's into football. So I said, let's go to the Amex. I'll take you down there. You drive me down, you drive me back. So we went to a game. Brilliant. <laughs> I sorted his ticket out and um, I said, just pay me the usual on the... Yeah, that was quite yeah. good. <laughs> I didn't have any yeah. beers, though. I thought, best not. Yeah. Great idea. I like that. I yeah, that. yeah, it was, it was I, quite I good. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of younger people in the car that are uh, that are Bryant supporters. And, all, you know, after a while, after about a couple of lessons, say, are you the Bob Booker that used to be there at the Albion? And I say, yeah. <laughs> they don't realise. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the youngsters are a little bit different. You don't get many older people that you're teaching these days. But That's true, yeah. All, you know, so, yeah. So, it's. Uh, I think... With the driving, it, it, suit, it suits my, 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 my way of life now as well, you know, because I've got the Albion work and I've got my driving work. It's a nice balance, you know. I'm, I'm lucky enough I've got, a, I've got some property abroad, so we like to spend a lot of time there. And with the job, you, you, like you say, you can make it, you can work as hard as you want or as little as you want. It, it gives you flexibility to do everything. And with the Albion as well, it's still got a little bit of a football fix. So, and it is a form of coaching, as you know. You know, you're in a, you're in a car, you're on a one-to-one, it's not on a team ethic, but it's, you know, you're still the coach, but you're still the psychologist as well. You know, as you well know, Russell, and that job, you know, we don't just deal with the driving, we deal with all their problems. You know, oh, you, yeah. <laughs> you become a counsellor, didn't you? You know, all of a sudden. You've been that is 100% after. the case, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's not all about the driving. You, you get a whole lot. So people will be sort of surprised about what we have to deal with, apart from teaching someone to drive. Yeah, I think we're saints, really. Uh, we've got, um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Pa- yeah. <laughs> patience are the same, but nerves are still. You've got to be a certain type of person. People say to me, how do you have the patience to do that? Or, yeah. you know, aren't you scared? Well, you, you, just have to, you just have to deal with that, and you've got to be in charge, because you're, you're in charge of someone's life, and you're in charge of a killing machine. You know, that's what they are, really, cars. So it's a big responsibility. So... Uh, you know, it's not just a case of going in, I'll say turn left and turn right. As, a, as you well know, it's it, it's a really, not so much a physical job, it's a more mental, mental, mentally draining job, I think. Uh, I, I do, but, yeah. For, oh, yeah. But it's got, it's got an end product, you know, it's like winning a game, isn't it? you get someone through their test, you, you've taught them a new skill, and they move on in their life, and you wish them well, and you move on to the next customer. So it's, you know, it's mm. it's got a lot of pleasure out of it. So I well, it, it, it was that my, my wife enticed me to do it and I'm glad she did because it, it is the job for me. I, I don't know what else I probably would have been doing after football. It's very difficult when you've been in that in that football world all your life. You know, you think, well, what am I going to do? You know, and my wife steered me towards this. So uh, it's all her fault. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was the same with me. My, my other half steered me towards it as well. At first, I thought, well, I don't know about that. Um, then I thought, actually, that could work. She said, you're a good driver. You've got patience and mm. calm character and everything. But I have to say that um, my patience has been stretched with the London drivers. Uh, I've got to say it is something else up here. <laughs> it's yeah, getting worse oh, and worse. Yeah. That makes, oh, sorry, that's not for me. 
No, I don't know. I don't know. You manage that. I really don't. I really no, don't. I, I wouldn't mind doing it down in Sussex, but up here, for too much. Yeah. You just, just briefly, one other question I've got to ask you, Bob. You mentioned your wife. She is, of course, for, for anyone that knows, Nikki Ketchup, then, who was a DJ with, was it, was it Southern FM? I'm trying to remember the uh, right. yep. station down yep. there. Hmm. Yep, Southern um, FM. Yeah, Nikki in the morning. Yeah. And I was reading, and I haven't renewed my athletic subscription so i don't know what the article says apart from the first two lines you know the thing where it goes gray and doesn't yeah. show you the rest of it there's an article here which starts in the summer of 2009 bob booker was relaxing with his wife nikki at a mallorcan retreat etc etc can you tell uh, basically something seems to have happened to you there can you explain what that was because i genuinely don't know because the article doesn't tell me um it seems That's something about a spider in your throat oh uh, yeah <laughs> You might laugh, but it wasn't that funny at the time. Uh, yeah, I was. It was. It was a very. It was a very difficult time for me, and you're probably quite lucky actually, because it's one of those times now when I when I spoke about it with with Andy Naylor, with Andy Naylor in the Athletic, I struggled to get it out, but I can talk about it now. I was just oh. was relaxing in our apartment, and I fell asleep on the terrace after having a few drinks, and a spider crawled down my throat and bit my windpipe. So uh, it actually, my, was a spider, right? Right. Well, they think they they think it was they they think it you know got attracted by the 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 cure or taste, and <laughs> yeah, and it it, it yeah. bit my windpipe and my windpipe my my neck was out here so I was I was running out of oxygen and and, and Nikki, God bless her, she got me down to down to uh, the bottom of the apartment and uh, luckily there was a local doctor just up the road that she had that she had a number for and yeah. they come in and got a got a shot of adrenaline me and they they whipped me off to uh, Inca hospital when i was in intensive care for three days oh right right bloody hell that's um, that's yeah such was, a bizarre situation that isn't it yeah because it comes it out of the blue it, it was touch and go and uh yeah i thought i thought i'd gone it, I, I thought i'd gone because uh you know a lot of I, was, I struggled after that a lot of time uh going back to work and the club were really good good with me i did mm. struggle you know i went into a bit of depression and it was a bad bad time but uh mm. Yeah, I thought I'd gone and, you know, a lot of thoughts go through your mind and things like that. But, uh, you know, Nikki was great. She, you know, she stuck with me and I, you know, I had counselling and things like that. And, you know, a lot of people don't know much about this, but it is in the book. And, you know, it was a, it was a really tough time and one that I came through. But uh, for that, for that, for them three days in intensive care, I didn't really know if I was going to wake up. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, I've asked you about that, but also slightly taken aback by it. I, I couldn't tell what the story where it was going to go from the athletic. Yeah. As I said, it goes greys out, and I couldn't get to the bottom of it. So, well, thanks for sharing that one with us. And that is that's quite alarming, isn't it? It just shows yeah. whoever you are, wherever you are, something randomly out of the blue like Absolutely. that can happen. Um, yeah, yeah I'm glad you did come through that okay. Um, yeah. you, you have mentioned the book there as well. Is that still available? By the way, it's called "Who Are the Bob Booker Story," isn't it? I think. Yeah. The book. Yeah, it's still. Uh, I think I think it's got it in the Brighton shop. It's still on Amazon. It's still ticking along in Amazon and up at the Sheffield United shop and the Brentford shop. So it's something you know. My dad would have been proud of. It's. I, I got a bit bit surprised when the the the, the writer Greville Waterman, he's a big Brentford fan, and he rang me up when I was who was around New Yorker, funny enough, again, and he. He said, oh, well, I'd like to write a book about it. He said, why do you want to write a book about me? He said, well, we just think it's a bit of a bit of a nice story, really, you know, from the factory floor mm. to the football pitch. Uh, you know, you, you went to Sheffield United, you become a cult hero and you come back and assistant manager. So you've, you've done everything in the football world, really. And 
we just think it'll make a nice story. So I said, yeah, let's go with it. And it, it wasn't it wasn't to make money. It was just something nice to get together. And I used to travel up to London twice a week. And a bit like I'm talking to you now, I would sit with Greville and just tell stories. And he'd ask me questions and he would take it all down on a dictaphone. And then he did the hard bit by putting it into book form. Uh, and we're really mm. pleased with the way it come out. And it's, you know, it's it, it sold really, really well. And I think people are interested in it, like the, you know, the Mallorca story or the driving story or the Robbie Savage yeah. story. It's a little bit different to a lot of autobiographies because it's not a, it's not like match by match and you won that league and how many cars you got and how many houses and how much money you earn. It's a, what I call real life story of a footballer coming through the 70s, yeah. 80s, 90s. See, I must confess, I haven't actually I've got a copy of the book yet. I must must get older one. Well, you better buy one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he's, he's giving I'll me a stare I'll now. sign it for you if you like. That'll put 10p on it. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that's a deal. Okay, well, let's do that. Um, but I, I do find those sort of stories are more interesting usually. I mean, yeah, match-by-match match accounts. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'd be interested in reading a biography in, on Thierry Henry or... Ru Van Nistelrooy or Alan Shearer or someone like that. Apart from the fact that a lot of these things are ghostwritten completely and they're not, yes. there isn't really oh, a soul to them. It was, you know, as, mm. as it was in them days, you know, not having money to pay your mortgage, you know, having a breakup in your marriage, yeah. going into, you know, having depression and, you know, it's all, it's all in there for people to, to read, you know. It's yeah, real it's life. real, real yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And Henry Winter, yeah. he, I mean, he, he done a great he done a great antidote on on the front of it for us, and he's he's no mugger for the chief writer for the time, so he really enjoyed mm. it. And Bradley Walker, who's a good friend of mine, he done the foreword in it. So uh, yeah, it's it's, it's 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 been something something nice, and it's still ticking along. You know, the royal is coming every month now and again for a few books, so it's nice. Mm. Uh, you know, done a lot of signing sessions up in Sheffield for it, and you know, we've done Smiths and people like that, and. You know, we've had a couple of dinners down, uh, evenings down at Brighton with me and Mickey. You know, promoting the book and everything. So, it's been it's been fun. It's and it's something nice that you've got now. It's you know, it's on the counter and you can look through it now and again without going through your pictures, your scrapbooks, and the whole the whole thing's there. So we're we're, we're really pleased with it. Brilliant, that's good. You've mentioned Bradley Walsh. It's just a reminder. He's he's a Watford boy as well, isn't he? Yeah, he's a Watford boy. Yeah, we grew up together, me and Bradley. And uh, there we, there we go. We've ended with Watford themed stuff yes. again, haven't we? After all, <laughs> we, don't, we don't mind Walshie getting on the program. He's all right. He's a good lad. No problem. I spoke to him <laughs> was it yesterday. I had a long chat with him yesterday, actually. So we had a we had a bit of a catch up on the phone yesterday. So uh, yeah, he's doing he fine. Does the, that, so. uh, doesn't he present the TV thing? Is it the chase? He does the chase. Yeah, he keeps telling me to come up and watch one. Watch, watch an episode of it. So, uh, well, are, you, are you tempted to? Are you tempted to, to enter it? He should go on. No, Nicky would. Nicky would like to go on it. He keeps saying to write in and he'll, he'll get her on it. But uh, we've not put her up to it at the moment. But uh, yeah, so uh, we'll have, we'll have to get that done at some stage. Definitely. Well, Bob, if you can hang on after we finish recording, because I've got a couple of bits I need to ask you away from the uh, the pods. But um, in terms of the podcast itself and you being on as a guest, thank you very much for joining us. It's been right. an absolute well, pleasure. Yeah, uh, we could talk for hours and hours, but we we better let yes. you get back to your life. Uh, <laughs> no, I appreciate appreciate uh, you getting in contact with me about it, and uh, you know all the best all the best for Monday when we get back out there on the road and get the voice going again it'll probably forgotten all the words for a while but uh i think <laughs> after a couple of lessons we'll be we'll be back into it and uh we've been living on fresh air for the last year haven't we russ so uh absolutely yeah exactly get, uh, get some money back through the doors exactly it's not too bad peter is still lingering in the backgrounds I, I don't know if he is still able to to speak or not but i'm gonna 
end it in the usual way. Peter, are you able to join in with the concluding bit? I think he is. Here he comes. I can try. Are you there, Pete? I'm not sure. <laughs> Okay, we're going to round it off in the traditional way then. So thank you, Bob, for joining us. Um, up and, and we'll say stand or fall. Up the Albion. He made it. Good, good. <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.